G'day, I'm Oli Laleve, and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which this podcast is produced. We've travelled to and spoken to people all across the country for this series. We'd like to pay our utmost respects to First Nations Australians who've told stories on this land for thousands of years and for hundreds of generations. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journey, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're covering Southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates, and just about everyone in between. Welcome back. And this week, I'm sitting down with a man who, more than 55 years, has had a huge contribution to the Southern Grains industry and Australian grain more broadly. Dr. Kevin Moore is a senior plant pathologist and has been recognised by the GRDC with its highest accolade, receiving the 2023 Seat of Gold Award for his impactful work in crop protection at this year's GRDC Grains Research Update in Gundawindi. Dr. Moore's extensive 55-year career in crop protection has had long-lasting effects on the grains industry, with his research outcomes and pulse disease management strategies still being actively used by fellow researchers and growers to improve profitability. So, let's get into it. Kevin, a huge accolade. What what does it actually mean to be recognised for your industry-wide impact with the Cedar Gold Award? Oh, it's a huge honour, um, Ollie. It's just, yeah, I mean, it's, my understanding is that there aren't that many given out and um, to be a recipient of it, um, you know, it's just, yeah, it's a tremendous honour and I'm, I'm extremely humbled, yes. You've had a heck of a career, what, more than 55 years in the grain space. What got you involved in agriculture? I, um, I grew up on a six-acre farm in the outskirts of Liverpool near Warwick Farm Racecourse in Sydney. So I was surrounded by vineyards and orchards and um, took farms, market gardens. So I spent most of my spare time on those market gardens, vineyards, and took farms. And we had six acres, so we did a had a little bit of um, farming as well. So that's how I got into it. And my uncle, one of my uncles on my mother's side, um, was a dairy microbiologist and um, and milk chemist down in Werribee, Victoria. So I used to go down on holiday with him and he introduced me to the world of uh, microscopy and um, biochemistry and I was quite fascinated by that. So I um, ended up going to Hurlston Agricultural High School down in Liverpool in Sydney. So I did agriculture at, at, at Hurlston and then um, fortunately enough in the leaving certificate I got a scholarship, a traineeship with the New South Wales Public Service Board and a condition and that put me through Sydney University condition of that traineeship was that I worked with them for five years after I graduated or pay them out and didn't have any money so I couldn't pay them out. So I, I took the work before them option and I've been with them ever since and still am until December of this year when I re- re- retired. Yeah, wow. So your career officially kicked off 1969. I'd love to know. Tell me a little bit about the Australian grains industry and cropping in Australia back in the 60s. So I graduated from Sydney University. Well, I finished fourth year Sydney University at the end of 1969 and I went straight to work at Rydalmere. The Department of Agriculture had a research facility at Rydalmere near Parramatta and part of the public service board traineeship was that I start work as soon as I finished university. So I started out there and in the biology branch, uh, surrounded by plant pathologists and dairy microbiologists and bacteriologists 
There was also a soils branch and a chemistry branch there. So it was a pretty well-rounded research facility. So I stayed there from 1969 until 1975. And in the process, I did an external master's degree through the University of Sydney while I was still working at Rydalmere. Then in February of 1975, I headed over to Washington State University in the Pacific Northwest of America on a Wheat Research Council scholarship to do a PhD degree with um, a fellow called R. James Cook, who was a pathologist with the U.S. Department of Ag based at Washington State University at Pullman in eastern Washington. And he had visited Australia several times, including one visit to Rydalmere, where he worked with myself and other scientists at, uh, at Rydalmere, and that's how he established this um, PhD program. So I went to Washington State University from 1975 to 1978, and their agriculture in terms of their crop choice is very similar to ours. So back in those days, it was primarily wheat, winter and spring cereals. Pulses were just starting to, to come into play, as they were in Australia, in eastern Australia. So I finished some PhD over there and came back to Rydamere, and I was supposed to go to Wagga. I was supposed to be transferred to Wagga to fill in, make up the complement of pathologists at, at Wagga, but in 1979, stripe rust of wheat occurred in Australia and there were already three pathologists at Wagga and there were two pathologists at Tamworth. One of them, Percy Wong, he got a sabbatical to go to Michigan State, I think it was, and the other fellow, Cole Wellings, was seconded to the University of Sydney's Plant Breeding Institute at Cobbity to work on stripe rust of wheat. So that left no pathologists at Tamworth. So the department transferred me to Tamworth rather than to Wagga. Was it 1979, 1980? I started up here, still here. I'd love to know. So stripe rust occurs in Australia, 1979. Like, was there a cause for panic? Like, what was actually going on? I guess, and and how quickly was the situation evolving? Well, it was concerned because you know stripe rust is a major disease of wheat, and we didn't know how it would behave in Australia. When I was at Washington State. University, one of the burial pathologists over there told me that stripe rust would never be a problem in Australia because our climate was wrong. But uh, that's not been, that hasn't been confirmed before, from what I've seen. I've seen some pretty nasty stripe rust outbreaks. <laughs> but fortunately, the wheat breeding programs in Australia, including the Department of Agriculture's program, had already started introducing resistance material into the wheat breeding program. So when stripe rust did occur, the plant breeders were you know, several seasons down the track, and they had some pretty good material um, incorporated into agronomically adapted varieties. So whilst it was a, well, I wouldn't say it was a shock. I think everyone was expecting stripe rust to turn up at some stage, but we were reasonably well prepared for it. And uh, I don't think there were any serious losses after the first couple of seasons. I mean, there's still, it's still a problem, but there's there's good genetic resistance and there's, and there's some very good fungicides available for stripe rust and the pathologists working on fungicidal control of cereal rust have done an outstanding job and they've got the timing right and uh, well, they worked out the correct time to apply these products and um, yeah, we don't see any serious losses from any of the cereal rust today but we don't have the severe strains of stem rust in Australia at the moment. Only a matter of time before they'll turn up. I remember seeing stem rust affecting wheat crops out in the central west Back in the, um, the 1980s, that were absolutely decimated by stem rust of wheat. So I've, I've seen what it can do, and it's um, it's not pretty. Uh, but the the breeders at 
and the pathologists have, uh, have done a very good job incorporating resistance to stem rust in wheat and also developing management packages. It's quite extraordinary because like across your career, I guess you've seen huge developments in the plant genetic space and, and breeding space, but but also to your early career was probably midway through the Green Revolution, was seeing the increase of um, synthetic fertilisers, then I guess more lately the development of precision agriculture and variable rate technologies and everything else that kind of sits with that. But across your career, what would you say has maybe had the largest impact, or even if you wanted to touch on kind of those couple of things from plant breeding to synthetic fertilizers and precision agriculture, what has had the biggest impact, do you think, in the advancement of grain growing? Oh, I think the adoption of conservation tillage and no-tillage back in the 80s. Nowadays, you, you drive around the northwest here nowadays, it, it's very rare to see a paddock that's cultivated. Almost all the cropping that's now done is done by direct seeding into the uh, residue of the previous crop. And that's been a huge advantage in terms of the water conservation and to some extent weed management as it's forced growers to be better weed managers. I think that that single factor, the adoption and success of conservation tillage, including no zero till, has probably had the biggest impact on agriculture apart from, of course, the availability of new chemistry and you know, variable rate fertilisers. And of course, now we've got the drone technology, which is revolutionising things as well. I mean, I went and I saw a, a demonstration up at Moree here last year where they sent the drone up. It mapped every weed in the paddock using um, chlorophyll detection technology. And then when the drone came back down, they uploaded from the drone to the spray rig the mapping information, and the spray rig went off. And this is all about there's no drivers. This is all remote stuff. And the spray rig went off and sprayed every weed and only sprayed the weeds. That's been pretty revolutionary. Does the the continual innovation just keep surprising? Like, do you wonder when things will slow down or do you just keep like just looking at agriculture and I guess the development of technology just in awe? Yes, in awe. It's incredible, isn't it? Farmers are great inventors and um, you know, a lot of these innovations originate with, with growers. You know, like the stump jump plough back in the 30s, that was invented by a farmer. Yeah. And I think a lot of that um, that controlled traffic and also the weed detection technology, weed seekers and so on, that, that, that all originated with growers. No, it's all very exciting times. It is. Have you have you got a favourite memory from across your career, Kevin? Uh, many I have. Oh, run me through the, the top few. Well, I think the, the development and adoption of, of reduced cultivation, you know, conservation tillage and stubble retention, and zero tillage, I mean, that, that's revolutionised everything and it's enabled growers to plant a crop in dry seasons when they would not otherwise have been able to plant a crop because they wouldn't have had the planting moisture. So that's maybe the biggest thing that's happened is the ability to harvest and um, store and look after soil moisture. And then, of course, there's the advances in chemistry and, and fertilisers, the development of new crops, and the rise of things like canola and, and the pulses. And nowadays, a lot of the a lot of the farmers I work with in central and northern New South Wales consider themselves to be canola pulse growers who also plant a bit of wheat. Thirty years ago, they'd be wheat farmers who plant a bit of pulses. Mm. So that's all changed. But I mean, that's driven by money, of course. When chickpeas got to sixteen hundred dollars a ton back in two thousand sixteen, everyone was growing chickpeas, including people that probably shouldn't have been growing them, that didn't know how to grow them properly and look after them. So we saw um, we saw some major disease problems in 2016 
But yeah, so the conservation tillage, zero tillage, new chemistry, variable rate fertilisers, and an increase in the cropping options has made farming more challenging, but also more exciting and probably more, hopefully more profitable. Mm. Three, three things to keep you stimulated, getting out of bed in the morning and, uh, and showing up, isn't it? Yes, indeed. There's nothing more pleasant, Ollie, than walking around a paddock of chickpeas in you know, August or early September when the sun's shining and it's not too hot and the flies haven't got active and it's really a, a very enjoyable time. And can I say from personal experience, Kevin, there's probably nothing more stressful than uh, chickpea harvest and riding on edge, hoping that the head is, <laughs> that you're not going to get a whiff of smoke coming from somewhere because God, that makes you ride on the edge of your seat. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen a few of those barbecues. Yeah, big old barbecues too, aren't they? Yeah, they certainly are. I remember going, I was up around um, North Star. There was a fellow that had a, he had a header. Um, on the eastern side of the Newell Highway, and he needed to get it across to the Taluna side, the western side of the highway. So he towed the, he drove the header over. By the time he went back with the ute to pick up the comb, and he came back and the header was on fire. Yeah, God. Yeah, and I know, I mean, cause that's one of the big risks with chickpeas, of course, is that the chickpea dust is highly flammable, major cause of fires in, in headers of chickpeas. Absolutely. Now, Kevin, I know you're, a very busy man. I've only got a couple of questions for you, but I think it'd be remiss not to try and capture some of your, your wisdom and knowledge that you've had over you, as I said at the beginning, more than five decades, which is just extraordinary. But for young plant pathologists who are only just starting their career, what would be some of your advice to them? I think the biggest thing is to get out into the crops. If you want to be a plant pathologist, you need to look at the look at the healthy crops. You didn't know what a healthy plant looks like, or you can identify a one that's not healthy, and the best the best way to do that is with an experience, another pathologist is experienced, or better still, with a grower and his or her agronomist. Spend a couple of days in the paddocks with them. That's the quickest way to get a solid education on on what a good crop looks like. And you know, once you know what a good crop looks like, you can identify what a poor crop looks like. Um, so that'd be one. The second is going hands on and collect specimens and take them back to the lab and have a decent look at them and, if necessary, do some isolation work. Talk to fellow pathologists. So the, the growers and their agronomists, fellow pathologists, industry people, so places like Pulse Australia, the RDC, of course. Yeah, that, that'd be the way I'd be steering young people. Spend time in the paddock. Spend time in the crop with people that understand the crop that's probably the biggest single thing that you could do to improve your skills. And across your career, did you have a couple or a handful of farmers kind of in your back pocket that you could really lean on for that practical implementation and I guess using them as your, your brainstormers? Or did you kind of continue and continue to develop that network across your career? Yeah, I've been lucky. I've had, um, had many farmers and agronomists happy to help me and let me onto their properties. And yeah, they've been great teachers for me. And I'm still enjoying those relationships. Kevin, we've got fast five questions. We've got a couple which we've been asking everyone who comes on the podcast. The first question is, what's your favourite grain-based dish? I like hummus. That's a pretty good choice, I reckon. Curry chickpeas. When I was in Syria, they, they make a dish over there called baba ganoush, which I also really like. That's made out of, uh, I think, faba beans are in that. Any of the dishes, the chickpea faba beans, quite 
parcel to those products and dishes. The next question is, if you could invite three people at any time around to have some of your Baba Ganoush or hummus with, who would be three people you'd invite around? Well, the late John Slatter from Pulse Australia would be there up there in the in the top five. Very interesting and very entertaining fellow, John Slatter. Did you know John? No, I didn't. Uh, he was the driving force behind Pulses in Eastern Australia or even indeed across Australia, but he was the Eastern Australian Pulse Australia Crop Development Officer, single-handedly promoted Pulses with a great passion. And I think the Pulse industry in Eastern Australia today is where it is, in part due to the efforts of people like John Slatter. So John will be there. Um, James Clark, former farmer from Cropper Creek and ex-chairman of the Northern GRDC panel. I did a fair bit of work on um, on James's farm up there at, at Cropper Creek um, with faber beans and then chickpeas. Um, Lester Burgess, Professor Lester Burgess from the University of Sydney, ex-lecturer at the University of Sydney. Fantastic guy, Lester, and also a very practical plant pathologist. Mal Riley. Mal Riley is a Queensland plant pathologist. He and I worked very closely together on phytophthora root rot of chickpeas. We had joint trials at Hermitage Research Station. The final one, probably a guy called Mick Heaney, who's a farmer out at Canamble, down in the um, the Quambone Road area. Mick's a very, he's a sparky by trade, but he's a very good farmer and very innovative and prepared to have a crack at new crops and new farming techniques. And Mick and I have known each other for oh, over 20 years, I guess, and um, it's, always been, it's always informative to spend a few hours at his place looking at his crops and what he's up to. Yeah. Sounds like it could be a good little event to be a fly on the wall at and just listen to some of the conversation that comes out of it. It would be, yes. A couple more questions here, Kevin. What was your first ever job? Could be as a school student or anything. What was it? My first ever job was working on um, a vineyard and a peach orchard at Chipping Norton when I was in primary school and then right through to university. I worked there in during university holidays, I started off as the, um, what do they call the boy that does all the storing jobs. I used to cart the, the empty boxes, the picking fruit, the boxes that they put the fruit in. Um, I used to take those around and leave them at the base of the trees or the base of the grapevines. And I progressed from there up to a fruit picker and a, and a grapevine picker. was taught how to identify when the bunches of, these were table grapes, black muscatels mainly, very nice grape, when they were ready to pick. And also I was taught how to, pick fruit, mostly peaches, but also nectarines, how to pick them fast. So you don't actually pick an individual fruit, you're picking a colour. You, as your eyes scan the branches, you go and pick that colour. And, and that, of course, is made up of individual fruits. That was a pretty interesting education. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. So many intricacies, isn't there? Yes, indeed. And uh, well, they were my first jobs. I also worked on a market garden at the back of our place the Chipping Norton in between the, the vineyard and the peach orchard and our place was a very large market garden. And I used to work there helping with the sowing and harvest of vegetables and we used to load the truck up in the afternoon and then I'd walk over to the house at 4am in the morning and we'd drive into the Sydney markets, which were near Central Railway Station. In those days, we'd unload the, the produce and then we'd take the truck down to Tooth Brewery on Broadway south of Central Railway Station, out down on the Parramatta Road. We'd load the, um, the truck up with the, the spent hops and the, um, the beer making. 
and we'd take those hops back to the market garden and spread them on the bed. Yeah, right. The original circular economy. Yes, indeed. It's funny how these things come in, come in waves, isn't it? Yes, yeah. If you, if you wanted to have a beer at five o'clock in the morning, you could. <laughs> Did you ever resort to it? No. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was only 15 or 16 in those days. Oh, well. If it was if it was hot enough and you were working hard enough, maybe you could earn it. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty tough way to start the day, 5 a.m. drinking schooners. <laughs> oh, I bet. Right, okay, Kev, we've got two more questions. What's something that is on your bucket list that you want to tick off? Well, my eldest son, Anthony, lives in Chamonix in France. I've been over there four times now, each one in wintertime. We go skiing together and... Uh, there's one particular ski run that I'd like to do. I forget the name of the mountain now. High up in the French Alps, it'll come to me. I'd be keen to do that. My final question for you, Kevin, where do you, where do you see agriculture heading and what makes you optimistic about the future of Australian agriculture? Well, the future of Australian agriculture lies with Australian farmers and their ability to adapt and accept the new technologies that are coming through, including new varieties and new management tools. And Australian farmers are very, very adaptive and very keen to adopt new technologies. So I think Australian agriculture is in pretty good hands. Perfect. Well, Kevin, I think off the back of your work for more than 55 years and a huge contribution to the industry, I know you have been recognised with the Seed of Gold Award, but I'm sure there's just so many more individual farmers who have benefited from the work that you've done. Thank you so much for joining us on this GRDC In Conversation podcast. Thank you, Ollie. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. And aren't they just having the most incredible impact? Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode of GRDC In Conversation or any of the GRDC podcast episodes. See ya.